From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Pim, I am so excited about our upcoming guest, Ralph Schlossstein, President and Chief Executive Officer of Evercore, uh, because he has such broad perspective on everything that's going on right now with respect to tax changes and how it affects CEOs and their companies. Uh, he joins us now. Evercore was the number one boutique investment bank in mergers and acquisitions last year. Uh, Ralph also, Mr. Schlossstein, was also the co-founder of BlackRock in 19. 1988. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I wanted to start with getting your sense of what the tax bill that is about to be passed by uh, Congress, what effect it will have on mergers and acquisitions activity. Well, I think as a general matter, there are a number of effects. First of all, the passage of the bill itself uh, takes away a major uncertainty about uh, taxation and organizations of businesses. So things, you know, transactions that made strategic sense, uh, but were held up by, uh, you know, deep uncertainty about how the world in 2018 would look versus 2017. Uh, that issue has been resolved. And uncertainty is always the enemy of uh, M&A activity. Uh, the second thing that will happen is uh, with the repatriation of you know, two-plus trillion dollars of cash that's held offshore right now by U.S. companies, uh, some amount of that unquestionably will go into uh, you know, strategic investments, uh, you know, which you know, will be done through uh, M&A uh, activity. Uh, the third thing uh, that also uh, I believe will happen is, uh, you know, the strategic repositioning of business portfolios at large and particularly diversified companies. So in the 2017 world, uh, if a company wanted to sell a division that they had a very low tax basis in, they had, you know, uh, to pay 35%. Uh, of the proceeds plus whatever the state tax was, uh, and you know the hurdle for disposing of businesses, uh, particularly low basis businesses, uh, is uh, you know a lot 
uh, lower today. And then finally, the effect on uh, you know the general M&A environment. M&A thrives when we have uh, strong equity valuations, readily available credit, uh, you know, good visibility as to the direction of the economy, uh, and CEO confidence. And uh, you know, the the first uh, three have been present, and I think this bill uh, reinforces CEO confidence and makes you know it, it somewhat more probable that M and A activity will continue. Mr. Schlossstein, uh, could next year be a record year for M and A? You know, it's it's impossible to predict. Uh, you know, the level of activity, you know, in the next quarter, much less the the next year. Uh, It's certainly true that all of the conditions are in place uh, for a very strong year in M&A activity. Uh, But, you know, 2015 was an extremely strong year, $4.2 trillion of announced transactions. Last year was about 3.5. This year looks to be tracking around that. Uh, so, you know, do I think it could possibly uh, be positive versus the last two years? I would say yes. Uh, you know, is it going to go back to the level of 2015? Uh, you know, I'm not smart enough to really know that. Dan Donovan, who is a Republican congressman uh, serving uh, Staten Island and Brooklyn, some areas of Brooklyn, said that he's worried about, quote, mobility of taxpayers in the top income brackets. He says losing even a small percentage of those households will decimate the state and city tax base. Do you agree with him? I think the the biggest risk to New York City and New York State uh, is precisely that. Uh, You know, I honestly don't believe uh, that, you know, this bill will have that much of an effect on uh, New York being the financial uh, capital of the world. Uh, The only competitor to us, you know, of real uh, concentration is London, and they have a heck of a lot more uncertainty uh, than we do. And, you know, financial businesses will uh, aggregate and agglomerate in places where there are other financial businesses and where they can attract, uh, you know, super talented young people. And the most talented young people are, you know, opting with their feet to be in the places like New York City and this bill, because they tend to be, you know, entry-level workers who aren't affected by the the size of the state and local deduction or the mortgage interest deduction, you know they you know they will continue to come in 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 droves i believe to new york city what i do worry about uh is people who are not uh uh attached by employment uh you know to the city so those who are well off uh and you know have significant net worths and incomes but are uh you know long no longer uh, working full time or retired, and you know, for those people, uh, this is a quite substantial tax increase, and uh, you know, they have complete discretion as to where they live, and you know, I, I think somewhere on the order of forty percent of the tax receipts of 
New York State and New York City come from 1% of the population, which is overwhelmingly concentrated in New York and the surrounding uh, suburbs. So, uh, you know, it remains to be seen the effect uh, that this will have on, you know, what is already a, you know, somewhat of a movement of, you know, people who uh, have, you know, real discretion as to where they live, uh, you know, away from high-tax states to low or no-tax states. Thank you very much for being with us, uh, Ralph uh, Schlossstein. All right, I want to bring in Shira Ovide, uh, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist when it comes to technology. And the topic today happens to be Uber. And they lost, didn't they? They lost their fight in the European Union. Tell us what this loss means for Uber and what it means for the taxi and transport companies that have been fighting this uh, upstart. So there's a there was a case pending before the European Court of Justice. And the legal question was basically, is Uber a digital company, a tech company, or is it a transportation company? And the uh, the court ruled that that Uber is basically a transportation company. It's a matter of law. Practically speaking, not much is going to change for Uber. So the way that Uber operates in most countries in Europe already complies with the idea that they're a transportation company, which means that their drivers need to be licensed um, in a way that similar to how taxi drivers are licensed. So practically speaking, not much changes. The interesting thing for me is kind of thinking beyond today's court ruling uh, to broader questions about Uber, which is one, um, will this have implications for the idea that Uber drivers are not employees, which is another legal matter that's pending in a separate court case in Europe? And two, does this mean that local transportation regulators will feel more empowered to kind of meddle in Uber, uh, Uber's business in every conceivable country? Which, to be honest, they've been doing everything they can to do that because the Uber drivers are paid a lot less than they make. They charge much lower rates and they have gained a lot of market share very quickly. I'm just wondering how much cross-border influence does this have? In other words, are U.S. regulators looking at to what the European Union is doing and thinking of doing something similar? That's a good question. I I doubt it, at least in the U.S., because, uh, you know, the U.S. does not really have this kind of cr- national transportation regulator regulation that's much more on a city-by-city basis. So while this ruling in Europe, maybe it'll empower some local transportation regulators in, you know, New York or Seattle, I don't know that it'll have... Uh, kind of broad national implications in the U.S. So we'll see. I mean, it's it's fair to say that in every market in which Uber operates, it is already under intense um, regulatory scrutiny. So it's hard to imagine that it will get any worse. They've got a new chief operating officer, Barney Harford, right? He is the former chief uh, executive officer of Orbitz. 
That's right. And uh, notably, the new number two at Uber used to work with Uber's new CEO, who uh, came from Expedia. So um, the, the two presumably know each other and like each other. Otherwise, they wouldn't agree to work together. And look, this is an important hire because Uber, Uber's leadership bench has been decimated over the last year or so. They lost their previous number two chief executive in March, who left under uh, unamicable conditions. Um, they lost a chief legal officer who's now been replaced. They're looking for a new board chairman. They lost one and a half billion dollars in the third quarter of the year. <laughs> yes, they have financial losses as well as leadership losses. So it's, it's clearly been important to the new CEO at Uber to restock the leadership bench and preferably restock the leadership bench with people he knows or trusts. Well, talking about trust, Uber has had some issues on that front, certainly with uh, regulators and uh, lawmakers. And uh, part of Uber's reputation has been that they do kind of, I don't know, test the edges a little bit. And how much does the new leadership try to demonstrate that it's turning a page uh, with a cultural shift? Look, I think that has been job one for Uber's new CEO is basically to change Uber's reputation. He said something, uh, Uber got this unfavorable ruling in London that may, at least in the future, uh, prohibit Uber from operating in, in London, which is one of the uh, the company's largest markets. And the Uber CEO basically said, look, th this is a sign that there is a high cost to a bad reputation. And that's what Uber has in almost every market in which it operates, at least with regulators uh, and, and including with drivers, too, in many cases. And the new CEO's job is to basically repair those relationships with regulators, with drivers, with customers, in some cases, with, with you know, writers. Sure. Just quickly, Harford uh, coming in, he's going to oversee the regional general managers, along with the uh, gentleman who heads the food delivery business at Uber. Are they going to change the way the company is actually run, or are they going to keep the same structure? I, I mean, I think it remains to be seen uh, that it was interesting that when Uber's CEO came in initially, he didn't think he needed a number two. And then once probably he saw how much repair work he was going to have to do with regulators, he changed his mind. And Lyft, meanwhile, is gaining share. So we shall see with that, right? Shara Ovide, technology columnist with Bloomberg Gadfly. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. She joins us here in our 1130 studios. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio.
It's important to get some perspective on Bitcoin and get a sense of just how many accounts are involved, just how much real money and just how much more uh, institutional interest we have seen as uh, the futures contracts start trading. Here to join us and give us that insight is Bobby Cho, who is head of trading at Cumberland in Chicago. Cumberland is DRW Holdings Digital Currency Unit. It is one of the world's largest Bitcoin trading desks and liquidity providers in cryptocurrencies. Bobby, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with just how much more money are you seeing come into this market? Are you seeing a lot of new accounts being created and institutions starting to come in? Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what we've kind of experienced over the last, let's call it 12 to 16 months, really a shift of the profile of the counterparty that we face here at Cumberland. So, as you mentioned, Cumberland is one of the largest institutional sized liquidity providers in the space. So, we make markets for uh, an array of different folks in the industry who are looking to get exposure to different cryptocurrencies, um, you know, heavily uh, dominated in uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. So what we've seen when we started the business in 2014 was we were catering to many folks who were very specific to the crypto space, payment processors, miners, and, and other individuals that were early adopters. Well, that shifted dramatically again in the last year or, or year and a half, where you saw a number of, uh, of cryptocurrency funds starting to pop up, a number of other institutional investors coming into the market. And really what that signals to me is that there was a lot of money and still is a lot of money sitting on the sidelines waiting to get exposure to this asset class, right? So this asset class currently is, sits around $600 billion, and that has obviously grown tremendously over the last few years. Bobby, when you talk about uh, the hedge funds or funds that are specifically focused on cryptocurrencies, that triggered my interest because I saw that uh, hedge, hedge Fund Research put out an index of cryptocurrency hedge fund returns. And I'm trying to get a sense do you have a sense of the AUM under cryptocurrency-specific funds? You know, uh, what we've seen is the number of cryptocurrency funds has continued to increase month over month. So to give you some perspective, right, in August, that number was right around 80 cryptocurrency funds. This is globally. Um, that number probably sits somewhere around 150. And, and we don't see that number stopping um, or slowing down anytime soon, mainly because of this this ability to access the market continues to be uh, limited. And so what people are doing, if, if they are looking to get access into these markets, is they're looking to actually invest in kind of traditional um, fund structures or vehicles uh, like those that, that we mentioned, crypto funds or hedge funds. Bobby, can you just tell us a little bit about Cumberland, how many people are working on this, and maybe just tell us where you got the original inventory of Bitcoin? Sure. Uh, so, so Cumberland, as you mentioned, we're, we're one of the largest liquidity providers in the world um, in terms of just our team and our desk. So we are global. Um, so Cumberland's headquarters is here in Chicago. We have an office in London. And we actually just opened up Singapore a few weeks ago. And so that allows us to kind of service our counterparties on a 24-5 basis. We are looking to open up 24-7 uh, in the near term. Um, and so basically... Team of 15? Uh, we're, we're greater than 15 now, uh, mainly just because of the expansion, and we see that number only growing over the next few months. Um, and so in terms of, I guess, inventory and things like that, uh, when we had gotten started in 2014, the idea really came about in 2012, give or take, when um, obviously through the walls of DRW and, and some of the folks here just trying to conceptualize what Bitcoin is how Bitcoin is going to change the world and, and fundamentally how we're going to look at this thing in the future. But hang on. Yeah. I understand that you actually, uh, or at least 
Cumberland bought a lot of the Bitcoins from Ross Ulbricht. That's the founder of Silk Road, who's now serving a life sentence, right, for narcotics trafficking. You bought 70,000 Bitcoins that were auctioned by U.S. and overseas authorities. Is that correct? So we had bought 70,000 Bitcoins from the U.S. Marshal's office. Right. At auction. Okay. That, that's correct, yes. And do you still have those 70,000 Bitcoins, or what, what form do they currently take? So we still manage a large uh, portfolio of cryptocurrencies, and that really allows us to do what one of our main kind of um, uh, responsibilities here is and, and, and services that we provide is providing over-the-counter trading for large institutional size positions. So when someone comes in and says, hey, I'd like to buy $50 million of Bitcoin, well, we have a portfolio that we manage to be able to supply that from our own inventory. And so um, we still manage a, a large portfolio of cryptocurrencies, and, and that obviously helps to support our business in making markets uh, over-the-counter. Bobby, how do you hedge against uh, any downside swings in your portfolio? So that's obviously something that is um, uh, super important to us because as much as trading uh, that we do during the day, from my perspective, we really take a lens of risk management. That's kind of the first thing that we look at. Um, and so we try to be aware of everything that's kind of happening in the market. Uh, obviously, it's very difficult to, to do so, mainly because this is a product that's traded 24-7 around the world and can be accessed by uh, a number of different types of folks uh, in the market. And so... With the advent of futures out there in the market, that kind of helps in terms of being able to hedge exposure, although we'll kind of see what, how much traction gains in the futures market. But we are just trying to prepare and, and be aware of kind of everything that's out there. Thanks very much for joining us. Bobby Cho is head of trading for Cumberland. That's DRW Holdings Digital Currency Unit. He's joining us from Chicago and much appreciated for giving us a little bit of a window into the world of trading Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. It almost sounds like a joke or a story. The couple that went on a vacation stayed in a particular location, liked it so much they decided to stay there permanently. Mandeep Singh is our technology industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and he's here to tell us about Airbnb launching their own apartment complexes. Mandeep, tell us the story of Airbnb, I guess, leveraging their brand and their expertise into a new market. Sure. So when you think about, uh, you know, online travel or online logistics, it's really about scale and network effects. These are the two most important things that any company that operates in this space has to have. And Airbnb had the first mover advantage in vacation rentals. That space is getting crowded now with Priceline and Expedia also expanding inventory. So what Airbnb is trying to do is essentially uh, kind of grow their scale by getting into this new segment of you know owning their apartments and really they're trying to uh, offer you know uh, accommodations for business travelers so that's a new segment they want to cater to so we're talking about this uh, in part because Brookfield, the big developer, just agreed to invest as much as $200 million in a joint venture with Nido. It's a multifamily development partner of Airbnbs, and this would go toward building a few apartment complexes, I believe in Florida, right, uh, that would allow residents and owners 
to rent out their properties through the Airbnb website for up to half the year. Is that correct? That's correct. Is this a first time type of thing or is there a model for this? So Airbnb is really the disruptor in this space and they have helped, you know, for people to share their homes and, you know, kind of uh, basically draw uh, like inventory where it wasn't available before, especially in urban cities or even for that matter, you know, in holiday locations. And, and the way they're able to do it is provide a technology platform. That's Airbnb's strength. Well, but what's the advantage to somebody who's buying one of these homes? I mean, what, what, would, what would it take? It's, it's up to a half a year. So it's not more than that. So is this for basically snowbirds that uh, want to make some income on their property while they're not there? Exactly. Yeah. And and a lot of these times, these properties were vacant. So by allowing these owners to actually, you know, put their properties on Airbnb's platform, it's free income and Airbnb knows how to manage these properties. So it's a win-win for both of them, you know. Mandeep, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is the business traveler and how this might be a real game changer when it comes to business travel. Rather than checking into a hotel where you're overcharged for everything from the coffee to the uh, use of the business center, if there is one, and paying for Wi-Fi if you have to, they're going to architecturally design these new properties in order to cater specifically Mm -hmm. to these kinds of potential customers. Isn't that right? Correct. And and they want to move up market. So till now, their uh, core customer base, Airbnb's core customer base, were price-conscious customers who were looking for the cheapest price on, you know, urban dwellings and, and really looking for a price that was cheaper than a hotel. Now, I think the fact that they have scaled, the fact that they have created a brand name, they want to cater to all the segments and they want to have, you know, separate uh, you know, entities which serve uh, these segments. So business travel is is a big uh, market in itself. And I'm just going to add that they don't necessarily then have all of that inventory that they have to rent out all the time, just as a hotel group would, because that's stagnant inventory unless, you know, you occupy it. Yeah, so the benefit of it, Airbnb is they are so good with crunching data that's available on their platform, and that's really their advantage that they're able to, you know, assess the supply-demand equation much better than a hotel or, you know, uh, some of the smaller hotels will be able to do themselves. So they really have a good stock of what the current supply-demand dynamics are in a you market. You know, I'm struck by the fact that Uber right now, which we'll talk about yeah. later in the show, is facing some uh, increased regulatory pressure yeah. in Europe, in part because they are designating them a taxi company, not necessarily a uh, gig company, the way the tech company, the way that they sort of build themselves to investors. I wonder at what point this type of thing hits Airbnb and they start getting treated more like a hotel company uh, than a tech upstart. I mean, that's a very much of a risk. And when I look at all the new sharing economy companies like Uber, like Airbnb, they started off as a technology platform. They pick a, an area to focus on, and they really, you know, leverage technology to mass scale. There is a risk that there is a cost side of the equation that obviously could get affected once you become regulated. So once uh, you know Uber gets regulated or Airbnb, uh, Airbnb gets regulated, it's going to uh, have a, an impact on the cost side, and that's always a risk. But having this investment from Brookfield, that's got to be a stamp of approval, or at least that uh, a conditional 
stamp of approval. Absolutely. And no one is doubting that Airbnb is a viable business. It's there for the long term just because they have the scale, they have the network effects. And in this business, that's what matters. So it's not going away anytime soon. It's just that the margin dynamics may change depending on whether they are a regulated entity or not. Thank you so much for joining us. Definitely um, something that we will watch to see who wants to buy these, how often they rent them out, and what is Airbnb's regulatory fate. Mandeep Singh, thank you so much. Tech industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence joining us here in our 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.